Hey, Derek, it's great to be here with you. Hi, Bill. Great to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting uh, conversation, but let, let's start with a little bit of, of, of history before we before we dive into that. So give, uh, give us some background on, on what you've done and, and how you've ended up doing what you're doing now. So I uh, have kind of a varied background in compliance and technology and cybersecurity. I actually started my career as an attorney. I worked for USC for a number of years. I was in-house there and I was focused on HIPAA and vendor uh, contracting and compliance issues that sort of surrounded technology and, and healthcare and, and other areas. And um, then I actually transitioned into the CIO's office at USC. I spent time as assistant CIO for the university and um, after that, I actually became CIO of the university's government-sponsored research institute called the Information Sciences Institute. Um, and there, uh, I was in charge of, of IT and cybersecurity and actually worked on their classified programs as well. So I've, I've had a pretty broad range of different cybersecurity and compliance frameworks that I've been responsible for. Uh, and then most recently, I spent six years at uh, Lewis Brisbois. It's a large uh, national law firm, about the seventh largest in the U.S., at least in terms of, of headcount with 50 plus offices. Um, and now I'm actually at a uh, IT consulting company called Defensive Networks. And uh, here I'm actually leading the cybersecurity practice um, for, uh, for Defensive Networks. Yeah, so it was while you were CIO at Lewis Brisbois is when is when you and I met, and and now you're kind of tying these things back together. So why, um, what why why the focus on on cybersecurity? You know, it's a great question, and um, there's a few people have said, well, you know, you've been a CIO, why are you kind of becoming more of a CISO now? <laughs> um, and, I, and honestly, I think I think part of it is. I, I just find it so interesting. Um, I, I think that cybersecurity is such a hot topic. It's really affecting companies. It's affecting individuals, the attacks that we're seeing. And it's just seems like an opportunity to actually help people where they need help the most. And, you know, I, I think there's also a lot of opportunity to I view IT and cybersecurity as really two sides of the same coin, right? I mean, if you're architecting an environment, if you're not doing it with a cybersecurity hat on these days, I, I think, you know, there's a problem. So I, I see it as all part of an integrated uh, sort of environment, basically. Yeah, I've always felt that you, security is not this thing that you can, that you can add after the fact. It's got to be a core ingredient from the foundation up. Yeah. No, absolutely. And so, I mean, this this is a particularly poignant issue in the legal industry. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm dealing with security issues all the time because our our firms are under pressure for for security, which of course uh, translates into 
in, into challenges that uh, that we have to take on. So what 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 do you, what do you see happening in law firms that's particularly of import on the on the security front? Yeah, well, you know, I think that a little bit of history um, might be a good place to start. So, you know, in 2017, the shadow brokers released information about Eternal Blue, which was the um, kind of backdoor that the NSA had been using for a number of years. And once they did that, that really kind of opened the floodgates to a lot of the ransomware attacks that we saw and the ability to literally hop from one computer to another, like, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, they called that like a worm-like behavior, right? Um, but that that uh, capability put in the hands of cyber criminals really kind of blew the doors off the barn. And, um, and then, of course, with the pandemic and workers, you know, no longer necessarily being inside the corporate, you know, headquarters, the branch offices, the secure local area network. Now they're literally working from anywhere in the world. Um, that was kind of the next blow to cybersecurity. Um, and really kind of a lot of companies were not prepared for the additional challenges that that, that sort of paradigm uh, would create. And so what we saw over, you know, roughly from 2020 to, you know, 2022 were, were, you know, double digit, almost triple digit increases in the number of cyber attacks targeting all businesses and, and law firms were certainly, you know, included in that, um, you know, and really causing the huge problems we've seen in the news. I think in 2023, this, the statistics I've seen indicate that, you know, the increases are starting to level off, but unfortunately it's leveling off at a high number, <laughs> right? Um, and and the other thing um, that's true is a lot of the things that we thought were going to solve a huge amount of the problems, like multi-factor authentication, um, the attackers have found ways to even get around that. And so I think that that we're now really in um, a set of circumstances where businesses are not checking, frankly, almost all of the possible security boxes and, and control boxes, then, you know, it's really just sort of a matter of time. And, you know, there's no guarantees even if you check all the boxes, but um, at, at least you're getting closer. Yeah, you've... Uh... You've got to build the baseline in order to be in the be in the in the game. And so, uh, you know, we we were talking before about the um, so several interesting stats. So, first of all, a lot of companies are choosing to pay a ransom, and we're seeing that's, a lot smaller companies right. that are getting targeted as part of that. Right. Yeah. So, um, Verizon uh, estimates in their cyber threat report. Uh, that 43% of cyber attacks hit small businesses. And, you know, we obviously hear about the big attacks, right? I mean, just in the last month, we had MGM Resorts get hit and their entire booking system was offline for days. Uh, 23andMe, the genomics company, was hit in the last several days. That was a little scary for, for quite a few people. Um, you know, the District of Columbia Elections Board just announced that they had a cyber attack a couple of days ago. And then 
going back, you know, a few a few weeks before that, the real estate uh, MLS system was hit and was offline also. So, you know, we've had these high profile attacks, but again, 43% of attacks hit much smaller businesses. Um, and, and another statistic that I've seen that I think is really interesting is that as many as 83% of companies pay the ransom um, in ransomware attacks. And I think that, I think that there's a couple of reasons for that and and they're scary reasons so you know one reason to pay the ransom is your systems have been encrypted and you don't have backups and you have to pay the ransom to to get back online and and save the company um i think that more and more businesses thankfully are paying attention to their backup systems and and therefore you know maybe that's starting to become a slightly less common scenario but the attackers have evolved and what they are now doing is they're saying okay even if you're telling us you don't need the data unencrypted to resume your business operations what we're going to do is unless you pay us the ransom we're going to release all of your sensitive information onto the dark web so they're calling that a double extortion scenario uh, where they're essentially coming at you from two angles. Uh, and you know, I think especially in the case of law firms, that's a really scary scenario, right? You've got all sorts of ethical and legal obligations to your clients and you know, really kind of puts you in a difficult situation where if you don't pay the ransom, then a lot of that information is potentially going to find its way onto the dark web. Yeah, that, that that is scary. What what what's your view of of on-prem versus cloud in this context of of security? Yeah, so you know, my views have definitely evolved and I'll say, you know, personally, I was, you know, initially resistant when Gmail first came out, when, you know, iCloud first came out. I I didn't want to put my own personal data in those cloud systems, right? And and there were some high profile, right? There were celebrities and, and people who had their cloud accounts hacked. And, and, you know, there were some reasons to initially be reluctant to embrace the cloud. Um, I have come full circle on that. And I think that, you know, especially for businesses, um, you know, that are not massive global organizations themselves, right? Like a, an Apple or a Microsoft or a company along those lines, the cloud is much more secure. And, and the reason for that is you have a lot of the benefits when you move your workloads into the cloud, you know, at least part of the security is being taken care of by the cloud hyperscale host, right? Whether that's Microsoft Azure or AWS, you know, that whole infrastructure layer is being secured by some of the smartest, most, you know, vigilant people on the planet. Having said that, moving a workload into the cloud, you know, does not mean that you don't have to think about it, right? I mean, if you're moving an infrastructure workload into a into like a compute cloud like AWS, you obviously are still responsible for securing, you know, the operating system, a lot of the networking, you know, there, there's absolutely pieces that your IT staff and your cybersecurity staff still have to be on top of and still have to, 
you know, check all the controls and the best practices. I think where it gets a little bit more murky is SaaS applications, right? Software as a service. And one of the things that struck me when I became a law firm CIO is that frankly, a lot of the vendors that supply software and supply SaaS applications to law firms are fairly small themselves, right? They're you know, 50 person companies, 100 person companies, et cetera. They don't necessarily have 24 seven cybersecurity staff and monitoring and all of the tools that, you know, you get when you put your email with Microsoft, <laughs> right? And so I think that one of the things that I've encouraged, um, you know, other law firm CIOs to do is really take a deep dive when when they're considering a SaaS application provided by one of the legal vertical vendors is, you know, interview them, send them a questionnaire, you know, put them through the paces and really um, understand, you know, what is that company doing to secure the application? Um, you know, what does their infrastructure look like, whether it is cloud-based or not? So I think I think those are really important. And I think that one of the most important things that I hope that almost all of the SaaS vendors have is a really top tier, you know, runtime protection program on their servers, right? So whether that's CrowdStrike, you know, Falcon Complete, whether that's Sentinel One. You know, Microsoft makes a good one, but if you don't have something like that, monitoring the runtime of, of the server environments 24-7 and then, you know, sending that data to a monitored, you know, SOC operation, then then there's risk there. <laughs> yeah, I've always felt building SaaS applications is, is just like your comment about the IT architecture, which is that security has to be baked in from moment one and mm -hmm. and the first line of code you write in a SaaS application has to be taking security into account. Yeah. And and that is the danger, particularly when you talk about um, transitioning a traditional on-prem product and just, you know, hosting it in the cloud, moving it to the cloud. It was never designed to run there. That has a lot of, of security challenges, which can be dealt with. It's just it's right. just more difficult. One of the things I've I've recently seen is some really good, um, you know, I'll call it AI based. I don't I don't know if it's really using a lot of true machine learning, but um, sort of automated uh, web application testing tools. And I think that those have come a long way in the past couple of years. Where you know it used to be you hired a company and they you know, put two or three people on it and they tried to break into your web application and, you know, maybe they were successful, maybe they weren't. You were sort of basing it on, you know, how smart those people were. <laughs> um, you know, now with the with the more automated tools, you can literally run through thousands of attack scenarios in a day or two. And I, I think that that is another, you know, I mentioned sort of the runtime protection, but I think that having that sort of vulnerability scan um, run against the external facing application that's touching the web is also really important. 
Yeah, the, the tools have gotten uh, have gotten much better. You know, there's there's core architectural decisions that make a huge difference. Like, you know, specifically for us, we we have a multi-tenant architecture for our SaaS products, but single-tenant databases, and that eliminates a portion of the attack vectors when uh, when you separate out the data that way. Uh, but you have to you have to be thinking about that from from day one. Right, right. And to your point, you know, once you if if the strategy is sort of just lifting an existing application into say like an AWS infrastructure, you know, you do have to think about, you know, have we accounted for the fact that this is not sitting in a secure data center anymore, right? And, you know, I think I think some companies have done that very successfully and others, you know, it's still a work in progress. <laughs> Is is there an advantage to? I mean, if you, if you are a law firm and have everything on prem, you you essentially have an X mark as to where everything is at. Versus if you are in the cloud, your data is spread across multiple providers, multiple applications. It's buried in each one of those. It's it's more of a needle in a haystack. Yeah, I. That's an interesting concept. Um, I, I will say this, I think it's very difficult for a law firm to truly secure their network. And and I think that, you know, especially with BYOD being as prevalent as it is, you know, especially with the fact that we're seeing, I, I mean, I'll, I'll give one example. In, in the last year, we've seen at least two Citrix NetScaler vulnerabilities. You know, Citrix is obviously the remote access, remote desktop capability that a lot of law firms use. Almost everyone who uses Citrix puts a physical gateway device on the edge of their network, which is what connects the Citrix cloud to, to the rest of the world. And those gateway devices have had critical remote executable vulnerabilities <laughs> twice in just the last year and i i know of scenarios where they have actually been you know attacked and they potentially create a doorway into the rest of your network and you know potentially right into your data center network and so um you know again if 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 you're running that in a data center your defenses are only as good as the defenses that you have paid for and the people that you have and the, you know, kind of 24 seven coverage that you think you might have. <laughs> um, right. If if you have your applications and your data hosted in the cloud and if you have, you know, hopefully the vendors and everyone else again has that 24 seven monitoring and they have all of that stuff set up then you know it, it's not to say that you can't have some of the same vulnerabilities in the cloud but i think that there is more likelihood that you're going to end up being patched you're going to have you know all other kinds of alerts letting you know that you've got a problem before it develops you know the lan is kind of famous for having the local area network is kind of famous for just having old devices sometimes literally tucked under somebody's desk that just sit there they get old, they have vulnerabilities, and then they become pivot points for attacks. You, you brought up uh, uh, bring your own devices, which seems like it would have a unique set of challenges. 
Do you want to talk a little bit more about about uh, about those issues? Yeah, yeah. So with with BYOD, um, I I will just say I am not a fan of BYOD, and one of the reasons why I don't like BYOD is the way that most companies implement it. And, you know, so a lot of companies have obviously understood we need multi-factor authentication on all of our applications. But what they don't necessarily do is also have identification of the devices that are connecting to those applications um, or a health check or security posture check of those devices. And so a scenario that I have witnessed is you have, let's say, webmail, right? And you can access your company's mail through a web browser. If you have multi-factor on there, it's a good start. It prevents, obviously, just username and password from being the vector to get in and access that email. But what we're seeing is that the bad guys have figured out how to either trick people into giving them the multi-factor code if a code one-time use code or rotating code is available um, or if it's a push that pops up on your phone they've figured out how to occasionally send sort of phantom pushes to people and basically create a sort of alert fatigue and then somebody just clicks it you know they're on the beach with their family they get a push they say i don't know sure and they click it and then the bad guy gets in so multi-factor is no longer bulletproof and so what you really need to secure your web applications is some sort of conditional access right and and it you know microsoft offers it okta offers it duo offers it almost all of the you know multi-factor uh, platforms have some version of it now but it basically says you know have i actually seen this device before Right. And in some cases, you can even put a certificate on the device. You can, you know, in some some way kind of identify that this is a device that we trust. So have I seen this device before? It can also look for things like impossible travel. So if a person, you know, logs in from Los Angeles and then three hours later they log in from, say, South Korea, you know, kind of not possible. <laughs> and so, you know, that's going to trigger an alert. And so you know, you combine a couple of those categories together. And then if you're also doing posture checking on the device, you know, double checking that it has encryption, that it has your runtime protection installed. If you're doing all of those things, then a personal de device can be as secure as a corporate device. But if you're not doing those things, then essentially what you have is your security is as good as the end user, right? I, I mean, if, if they don't have a robust antivirus installed, if they don't have their device encrypted, if they have visited websites that have loaded viruses on their computer, you know, now that's essentially touching your network or at least touching your web application. So, you know, it's possible to make BYOD secure, but only if you're checking essentially all of those boxes. You, but you're essentially pulling in the the BYOD devices and making them the same as if as if it were a company uh, issued. Right. And obviously that creates, you know, privacy and HR questions, right? You need to be prepared to answer those. But yeah.
Mm-hmm. So you think it's worth the expense just to uh, issue your own devices and have complete control of the process? I, I think so. I think that by the time you work through the privacy and HR issues and by the time you add in all of the software and security that you're going to need anyway, you really just may as well hand somebody a device that you know exactly the configuration and security status. IBM actually did a white paper on this quite a few years ago now. It was probably at least six years ago, and they found that their IT costs dropped by something like 50 or 60 percent when they just started issuing devices to everyone. And actually, a lot of the the major consulting and audit firms, you know, the Deloitte's and EY's essentially have taken the same approach, right? Like everyone gets exactly the same laptop. They have a stack of them by the reception desk at every office. If it breaks, you know, they hand you a new one, basically. And, right. you know, just it it keeps IT simple, um, you know, easy, repeatable, and they always know the status of the device. And, you know, it not only can it reduce IT cost, it improves security. It's really a win-win if, if you're a CIO or a CISO or, for that matter, you know, CEO. <laughs> Yeah, there's uh, huge huge advantages. Any anything that's reproducible. Yeah, the uh, the fishy the the fish fishing testing uh, software that you know we're all running these days. Did, is, does that stuff work? Does it does it train people to to not fall for these things? You know, I I think it does. I think it helps. Um, you know, I've witnessed you know improving numbers as that type of software has been rolled out. Um, so I do think it helps. I think that one of the problems, though, is a lot of people still don't understand what a domain name is, <laughs> right? And, you know, I've seen people where you tell them if the email comes from, you know, com, it's coming from Bank of America, you know, outside of some really exotic situations. But one of the things that modern mail clients do is they obscure that actually which is sort of remarkable if you think about it but they they say you know you just got an email from Derek Lazaro and it displays Derek Lazaro that can be forged by anyone in about four seconds right and so um I wish that Apple and Microsoft and and some of the companies that make our mail clients whether it's on an iPhone or a computer would stick with the traditional, you know, here's user at domain.com, <laughs> right? And and then I think that would be something we could train users on. Of course, you can click on it, right? But it's one more step and and many people don't do that. So I think I think awareness programs do help, but I also think that, you know, every time we take a step forward, we seem to take a step backward as, you know, software changes and users are you know we're trying to make it simpler and easier less technical and then we're obscuring facts that can help users detect problems yeah that's uh that's tough to navigate so the the compliance uh or, or security frameworks um you know like SOC 2 so what com- comment on the the value or challenges with those yeah you know so I think that security frameworks are necessary but not sufficient. Um, and that's 
that's sort of a view that I've evolved into and, and recently really kind of come around to that opinion. And I, I think that they are helpful. And I've personally been involved in, you know, huge compliance programs. I've implemented NIST 800-171, which has 110 technical controls. And then we had auditors come in and, and check it. So I've sort of been through that, that rodeo. Um, and, and again, there is some value there, right? Um, they, they do force you to achieve some, what I'll call baseline minimums in terms of cybersecurity. Um, but I think that the challenge is that you can check those boxes with the budget version of the control, <laughs> right? And, you know, th there's a box for have antivirus. Okay, check, right? But it it doesn't really tell you, you know, whether you've gone with the worst possible scanning engine or the modern runtime 24-7, you know, monitored solution. And so um, I, I think that's one of the challenges. I you know, going back to sort of multi-factor and BYOD, you know, similarly, you can check the multi-factor box, but unless you have conditional access and the sort of, you know, additional checks there, it's only buying you so much. And so I think, I think the compliance frameworks are a starting point, but I think that if you really want your business to be secure in 2023, you, you, you have to go above and beyond. Um, otherwise it's, it's, yeah, it's just not getting you there. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Having, having recently uh, tackled SOC 2, uh, and, and you can hire your way into, you know, into compliance and get through an audit, but there's a big difference between doing that and, and actually doing the work and, yeah. uh, and you have to actually do the work. It's not, it's not fun. It's not easy. It's, it's actually really annoying. Um, <laughs> But there's there's a pretty big gap between what it takes to get through the audit versus what it takes to actually uh, implement uh, the real real process and tools. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, what is is there anything that's particularly uh, uh, top of mind in terms of the the challenges that you're uh, that you're seeing in the in the market right now, I mean, I, I think the the double ex extortion one was was a really interesting one. That's a that's a double whammy. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. I, I, you know, I think the use of valid credentials is really the scary trend that continues to be successful, right? And so a lot of these attacks it's not that the entire attack revolves just around, okay, the bad guy has gone on the dark web and has some credentials, but oftentimes they do start that way, right? And then again, they bypass multi-factor uh, authentication, either through fatigue techniques or other techniques, um, and then they get into your system and then they pivot from there. And then oftentimes there's sort of an additional layer where they use some level of you know technical vulnerability or exploit at that point to compromise one of the machines, escalate privileges, you know that that sort of kind of attack chain. So, you know, I I think that the biggest thing, one of the main things I'm recommending to companies right now, is that 
if they have regular multi-factor that they add you know conditional access or some additional layers of security onto that as i mentioned also you know looking at your byod policy and really making sure that it's you know really robust and that all of those boxes are being checked as well i think that those are are critical um i also think that companies really need to have a robust program around third-party risk and around vulnerability technical vulnerability management so you know going back to the netscalers and citrix if you are just sort of waiting for the announcement there's a good chance you're going to miss it right <laughs> or that you know you'll patch your machine but you'll patch your machine a week after the bad guys have exploited it so you really need a program where you've got staff who are thinking about this essentially you know on a cadence a daily weekly monthly cadence and and really staying on top of that um when it comes to the third party you know and vendor risk again i think the cloud absolutely can be more secure than most on-prem environments but you have to have the ability to ask the right questions you need a questionnaire you need to really have you know the ability to dig in on a, on a pretty technical level and say all right are my vendors doing all the things that i'm doing and hopefully more right to protect my data yeah i really gotten the feeling from uh answering a lot of those questionnaires i mean it, it becomes like the security feature checklist process right it's mm -hmm. just uh it's a checking the box thing and you really gotta you got to go a level deeper than that. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I mean, I think, again, the questionnaires are a good starting point. And I've seen some really good ones that, you know, almost almost get you there, right? Um, in terms of answering all the questions you need. Um, but I think it's worth it, especially in the world of law firms and the kind of data that a lot of law firms deal with, you know, go a step further, actually, you know, interview some of the key people, whether it's a security officer, one of the security engineers and make sure that that the checkbox means what you, what you think it means. Right. Yeah, I yeah. think that's uh, ex excellent advice. Well, Derek, it's great to to catch up with you. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me, and it's been a great conversation.